This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, Joyce Carol Oates talks about the editing of the anthology Prison Noir, and then PW Poetry Reviews editor Alex Crowley brings us the best poetry books for autumn. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. We have some big numbers on the list uh, for hardcover fiction this week. At number one is Ken Follett's Edge of Eternity. It sold 87 thousand copies wow. in its first week out now to to give you some idea of proportion um the the next debut further mm-hmm. down the list at number six is raging heat by richard castle which sold eight thousand copies oh wow so a uh, real real difference there factor of 10 we gave the fallout a starred review uh we said it is the ambitious commanding capstone to his multi-generational century trilogy uh, in which Follett expertly chronicles the pivotal events of the closing decades of the 20th century through the eyes of a vast array of deftly drawn characters, all of whom suffer the slings and arrows of a world marred by war and global unrest. Mm. So uh, it goes from communist Berlin through uh, to 2008 with an epilogue set on the night of President Obama's electoral victory. Wow. Um, it's uh, it's quite a span right. of time and space. Um, it's a very intense book, uh, and our review concludes that this mesmerizing final installment is an exhaustive but rewarding reading experience, dense in thematic heft, yet flowing with spicy, expertly paced melodrama, character-rich exploits, familial histrionics, and international intrigue. Wow. So something for everyone in there. Yes, and these books are pretty thick. Yes. Yeah, yeah, this is a a hefty title. It clocks in at 1,120 pages for $36. So uh, So 80,000... 87,000 copies sold. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, Which is, you know... Pretty pretty impressive. Yeah, it really um, is. That is 87 million pages of Ken Follett right, right. <laughs> that are now out there in the world uh, and and more to come. I, I certainly hope... multiplication, Rose. Well, thank you. Very thank clear. you. I do my best. Um, so I... Uh, I sure hope his publisher did a very big initial yeah. print run, uh, and that that's out from from Dutton, who right. you know, whoever decided that it was worth it to price it at thirty six dollars is probably patting themselves on the back right about right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, so a little further down, as I said, at number six is uh, Raging Heat by Richard Castle. Uh, this is the sixth book featuring NYPD homicide detective Nikki Heat. Mm-hmm. Uh, her boyfriend is an investigative reporter, and she's a homicide cop. So you know, sooner or later, something's going to go wrong there, and in this particular book uh they both have investigations into the same case and his concludes that she arrested the wrong guy so Mm. uh, now they have to figure out what's going on while seeing whether it tears their relationship apart uh and i just wanted to go a little bit further down also and uh touch on the book that is at number 19 
which is The Paying Guests by Sarah Waters. Uh, we also gave this a starred review. Sarah Waters is a really interesting figure. She's right on that line of sort of literary and fantastical. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of her books, uh, Little Strangers, uh, might be called a ghost story, might not. This is a, one of these authors that I always fight with the fiction editors over. And, uh, they they is won it this genre one. or is it fiction? Is it genre yeah. or, is or is it literary? Is it literary? Yeah, Which yeah. is itself a genre, but right. don't want to get into that now. And, uh, so uh, this this one is uh, about two brothers who are killed in World War One, um, followed to the grave soon after by their father. And uh, so the a 27-year-old sister knows uh, that she and her mother must take in lodging euphemistically described as paying guests mm-hmm. uh, in order to maintain their large house in a genteel section of London. So um, this is you know, set in 1922 in England, the, the period between the wars, but it was thought to be the period after the war to end right. all wars. Um, and so a time of, of considerable social change, the rise of the middle class and so forth. And um, in addition to all of this, um, there is a romantic subplot between uh, Francis and a young woman named Lily. Uh, and so as the two of them fall in love, uh, a very dangerous situation develops uh, because at the time it was quite risky to uh, certainly to, to be in any way public about a woman uh, who loved another woman. And so uh, readers of Waters' previous novels know that she uh, really has a a tremendous touch with bringing historical eras to life. Uh, She renders authentic details into layered portraits of particular times and places. And our review says that her restrained and beautiful depiction of lesbian love furnishes the story with emotional depth, as does the suspense uh, that develops throughout the story. And when Francis and Lily confront their radically altered existence, the narrative culminates in a breathtaking denouement. Uh, so we said that this deserves a larger audience, um, and while it is on our bestseller list, it's down at number 19, mm-hmm. so hopefully uh, readers will show it a little more love yeah. in the weeks to come, but it uh, certainly sounds like it deserves some. Well, even at 19, it's it's still oh, I mean, really tough to get up in the top 20, 50 books, I mean, considering as many true. books are uh, published, so that's great, good. All right, so what's happening over in nonfiction? Okay, so we've got... Um, the titles we have that are debuting this week are kind of uh, how-to kind of books in ways, or at least how to think about things. So the first one is Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. This is by Peter Thiel with Blake Masters. He is the founder of uh, PayPal, mm-hmm. and here he presents a series of his musings, such as doing what we already know how to do takes the world from one to n adding more of something familiar but he says that going from zero to one rather than a cohesive narrative we we seem to be starting from the beginning so rather than something cohesive we um in the end we say he touches on how to build a successful business but the discussion is too abstract um to offer much of value but um sounds like his his readers are uh Grabbing onto it anyway. So. All right. Next up, we have Alona Poldi and Matthew Lederman. Uh, this is a four-week meal-by-meal makeover. Uh, the subtitle, the title is Forks Over Knives Plan. 
Uh, and this is based on the popular books Forks Over Knives, which is actually was made into a movie. Uh, both Pould and, and Lederman um, are physicians. They're the authors of Keep It Simple, Keep It Whole. And here they explain how readers can uh, change over to a whole food, plant-based diet. Therefore, Forks Over Knives, eating plants rather than cutting through meat. Got it. Um, those new to the plan may be surprised that portion control is out of the window because, as the authors point out, plant-based food foods have a lower calorie density larger portions are required to maintain um, uh, to maintain your 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 diet this is a worthy addition to the growing forks and knives library we say in the end so that's at number nine so how did that get turned into a movie uh, yeah you know I'm not too sure uh, <laughs> it doesn't sound like uh, yeah, right, much exactly of a plot. exactly well this is their this is their meal by meal uh, sure. diet but still the forks over knives yeah yeah and I don't quite remember the film adaptation of it what that's about right next one is naomi klein uh this changes everything capitalism versus the climate and we say the struggle for a sustainable world is really a fight against capitalism according to the sprawling manifesto from uh klein who who writes a column at Na- the nation she's the o- also also the author of the shock doctrine uh in the end we say by drawing everything quote unquote into her thesis klein dilutes her overstuffed books consistency and coherence and we say, worse, her tendency to demonize more than analyze leaves unaddressed the real-world conflicts and contradictions that make climate policy so intractable. Oh, dear. So that's at number 14. <laughs> um, and going on to something a little bit lighter, we have Melissa Gilbert. Uh, people remember her from Little House on the Prairie. And here is her My Prairie Cookbook. This is at number 25. Memories and Frontier Food from My Little House to Yours. Uh, so uh, here she presents uh, 80 simple recipes, uh, crispy fried chicken, pot roasts, apple pie, uh, and personal recollections and anecdotes, including some memorabilia from the show. So that's at number 25. And that's basically what we have for our nonfiction bestseller list. So it looks like we're getting some some lighter fare uh, yeah. kind of kind of the grab bag at the end of the season. Yeah, and I think we're going to be seeing a little few more cookbooks uh on the list. We've got some big ones that are coming out uh in in October. I wouldn't be surprised if Mario Batali's made it on there. Mm-hmm. Uh and, and there are a couple of others and we'll we'll uh uh come October once these books are out. I think we'll uh at least I'll dip into the uh uh the cookbook uh bestseller list just to see what exactly is going on in cookbooks who's reading what oh that sounds very exciting i'm looking forward to that i'm mark rotella and i'm rose fox and this is publishers weekly radio next up joyce carol oates tells us about her anthology of noir stories by writers behind bars we'll be right back hi this is justin martin author of rebel souls walt whitman in america's first bohemians and you're listening to publishers weekly radio Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got Joyce Carol Oates on the line, and her new book is Prison Noir, an anthology of crime stories written by people behind bars. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So tell us about this book. It's a great idea. How did it come about? Well, let's see. How did it come about? I think that I was teaching at San Quentin with my husband a couple years ago, and Johnny Temple, who is the publisher of Akashic Books, and I had done um, an, a similar book called New Jersey Noir. Mm-hmm. And maybe we were just, you know, doing email, and he 
had the idea of doing a prison noir book, and he asked me if I would like to, to edit it. Now, I love how casually you say you were teaching at San Quentin. How, <laughs> how, how did that arrangement happen? I think a lot of our listeners probably have no idea that there are writing education programs behind bars. So tell us a little bit about that. Well, there are education programs and writing workshops behind bars all around the country. Unfortunately, not enough. But in the California system, there's a program called Prison University Program. And that's quite established. It's been in operation for some years. And in the San Francisco area, where where San Quentin is located, there are many people who are quite eager. They're very liberal. It's a very liberal part of the world. We were living in Berkeley. And there are many people who love, who love to volunteer and, and go out to San Quentin and, and teach all kinds of courses. That's really fascinating. So um, who were the inmates that you were working with there and the ones who contributed to this book? Well, the ones who contributed to this book are all around the country. There was only one prisoner from San Quentin, as it, as it turned out. It's somewhat coincidental that I was teaching there. But they're all around the country. And the people with whom we worked, I say we because my husband was teaching a biology course. He's a neuroscientist. Mm-hmm. And I was working with another person who who came out. It did seem to be the case, as far as I could tell, that many instructors did not teach alone, that maybe there were two people in the classroom or perhaps even three, that it probably wouldn't be the case that a woman would be teaching alone. I'm not not saying that adamantly or or definitively. I'm not sure, but... It did seem to be that most people were teaching in you know, little teams mm-hmm. mm. with another person. And I went out um, once a week, depending upon whether the prison was, was open, because there are many lockdowns at, at, at large prisons. It did, the whole facility goes into lockdown if there is um, some, some incident, of course, but quite commonly, there are illnesses that sweep through prison facilities. Hmm. For instance, they had a, a, an epidemic of shingles hmm. and an epidemic of swine flu. The men are so, they're all men, as you probably know, the men are so congested in their, their prison cells, everything is so congested that illness just sweeps through the whole facility. Now, the people with whom I was working were inmate writers who were in the prison university program. They had been admitted, and they were taking college-level courses that would get them a BA equivalent to a degree from a community college. So I only saw very motivated and dedicated men. My oldest prison was 61, and some were in their 30s, maybe in 40s. There are not very many really young prisoners. I'm not exactly sure why, but the youngest may have been in his 30s. Hmm. And what what was it that made you, you, you had said you had started doing this a couple of years ago with your husband, was it? Yes. And we were at, at UC Berkeley. He was teaching there, and I had a sabbatical from Princeton. And I said to... Charlie, I said, what is the one thing we can do in the San Francisco area that we can't do in Princeton? And we came up with the realization that we could volunteer to teach 
and a, a maximum security prison, which is quite a, um, it's a challenge. And I wouldn't say it was stressful, but it isn't easy. You know, it's not as easy as teaching at Princeton. Mm-hmm. There's always a feeling of psychological uh, challenge. Mm-hmm. And and so would you work with them uh, on the pieces the same way you might, uh, say, at Princeton? I mean, maybe in a workshop environment, or was there more of a uh, uh, intro to, to fiction kind of idea that you worked on? No, that's a good question. It was a, it was a writing workshop, and they've had other workshops, mm-hmm. and some of the men in in my class had been in other workshops. So they're really familiar with the writing workshop situation. It was something like Princeton, but not quite as critical. I was never as critical as I am with my students at Princeton. I think for the average inmate writer, and perhaps anywhere, including women, it takes so much courage for them to write they always write about themselves. They usually write about their families or their the crime they committed or how how deeply unhappy they are or mm-hmm. how repentant they are, how sorry they are to have made a mistake. They usually write about themselves in some way. And so it takes a lot of courage for them to, to do that mm-hmm. and present this to other people. Because as you know, in prisons, a man's or a woman's reputation is everything. They have nothing mm. at all. They have no possessions. They have nothing except their reputations. So they're very sensitive. And I would basically encourage them, make some suggestions. But overall, a lot of praise, a lot of encouragement, having them read the work to one another, and they all praise that everything was constructive criticism. Whereas at a university, you're working with different kinds of people, and they are there and are paying tuition to get criticism. So I, I offer much more much more criticism in the university than I did at San Quentin. And and I imagine, you know, in the same way that, say, in, in you know, a, a, a maybe a freshman, sophomore course in fiction, you, you are going to get a lot of people, or, or even writing in general in college, writing about their own personal experiences. It takes a little while for them to, as you said, to, to take it beyond the self and to actually create something out of nothing. And what was it about noir? I, I know this was part of the Akashic series in noir, but did you feel that some of the prisoners there maybe gravitated towards noir, or was this something that you were teaching specifically? Well, I th- I wasn't teaching for this chorus. The chorus was offered to me, uh, mm-hmm. excuse me, the uh, editorship was offered to me after. Mm-hmm. As I said, with uh, I had been doing email with Johnny Temple about my other book, which is called New Jersey Noir. Right. And so when the publisher wanted to do a prison noir, they just naturally turned to me because we had already done quite a successful project with Prison Noir, got very good reviews and sold quite well. It was lots of fun for me to do. And so the Prison Noir, of course, the submissions from all around the country, a preponderance from Michigan, because the writing programs evidently in Michigan are just excellent, and some from California, and very little from New York State, it's very strange. They, they are, the distribution of these prison programs is very uneven. Oh, that's, a, um, that's a whole story in itself. Yeah. 
There was someone from Florida, but overall, nothing from the South. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah, exactly. So basically the kinds of programs that were, it's I guess, a state-by-state. State. That's right. Yeah. So I, I think of Nora as having this very romanticized view of crime in, in many ways. So how did that jibe with having people writing it who really understood it from the inside? Well, I guess that's a, that is a good question. Noir is somewhat romantic in film, but it but it's really cynical too. You know, like double indemnity has these somewhat glamorous actors, but the story is pretty cynical and pretty dark. And maybe in writing, it's much more dark, like James Elroy's succession of books about mystery books about about Los Angeles are, are pretty dark. So the prisoners wrote in a variety of styles. There was actually a couple of prisoners who tried to write comedies. Mm-hmm. And I have I have one in the volume. It's it's not exactly hilarious, but it's a little lighter. Right. And that was that was one that, that we chose. But overall, let's say ninety eight percent the writing is pretty grim and it's pretty candid and pretty much about how the prisoner maybe got there or what his life is like in the prison. So the stories are about prisoners as well as being written by prisoners? In every instance, I believe they're about prisoners. One outstanding story by a woman named Linda Marchand, who's, who's incarcerated in Michigan, is very much about how a woman, not unlike herself, got in prison. 42-year-old mother of three sons with a B.A. in English from Pennsylvania State. And when you read the story, you almost feel that could have happened to me. Hmm. This woman made a devastatingly uh, mistaken choice in marriage. She was sort of swept off her feet by somebody who, it turns out, was a psychopath Mm. who was also a lawyer. Wow. And when you read the story step by step, you just see she gets deeper. He's abusive. The the abuse is just sickening. He abuses her and the children, and he's going to kill her if she she even tells anyone. So one day she kills him. Mm Mm-hmm. She kills him completely desperately and in a deranged way and a terrified way, and now she's incarcerated. So the story sort of, in some cases, the stories bring us into the alternate universe that we ourselves might inhabit. It could have happened, maybe. Many, Many women would say, well, I was lucky when I got married, because many people, when they get married, don't really know who they're marrying that well mm. if you're married young. So that's an example of a story that partly takes place in the outside world and then in the prison. But many of them, or most of them, are just set in the prison. And uh, the piece you're talking about is called Milk and Tea. Yes. And how might, you know, with something like this, something so close to the bone, how might an instructor or even you as an editor, uh, like maybe t- take it away from the personal and, and, and fictionalize it? I mean, do you, same way you would do with other, with fiction, with fiction writing students in traditional universities? Well, I have no way of knowing mm. if she hasn't already fictionalized this to some degree. 
you know, I, I, I said before that it seems that the character in the story is not unlike the author. I was saying that kind of carefully, sure. you know, not unlike. We don't really know. Maybe she's writing about her cellmate. I don't really know. None mm. of these people are saying that they're writing a memoir. It's supposed to be fiction. And one person who contributed has subsequently been executed, the person who was incarcerated in, in Florida, and that wow. was particularly sad. That's, wow. I'm going to need to it's sit here for a moment sad because it was that. a felony murder. I mean, he was with somebody else who committed a murder, had a gun, and so he himself didn't pull the trigger. Mm. These are crimes that in another state, like New York State, would not be punishable by death. Probably the person would be in prison for 20 years or less in New York State. So has has this experience led you to activism of, of any kind? Because it sounds like you really can't do something like this without becoming intimately aware of what prison conditions are like and, and imprisonment laws. Well, that's true, and yet the worst prisons are not represented because they're in the South, mm. and they are predominantly black prisoners there, and I have no idea what they're like. The The better prisons, like San Quentin, are bad enough, you know, of course, but I think that there are many activists involved in, in prison reform, and some people are, are in in the profession who are who are trying to reform. It's always a case, I think, of limited budgets and not having money. It goes, it goes back again and again to not having enough money. As always. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Joyce Carol Oates, the editor of Prison Noir. You've edited uh, other anthologies, as you said, New Jersey Noir and many others. How is the process different for this one? I mean, how, how do you publicize a call for submissions within a prison? Well, we were working with the Penn Prison Program, mm-hmm. P-E-N, and so they send out notices. I also knew a number of people like Wally Lamb, who's most, the most esteemed editor of, of uh, writing by incarcerated women, Molly Lamb and Susanna Moore and Ayelet Waldman and some others mm-hmm. who I knew were, they were sort of friends or writer friends of mine and I knew that they were, were working with prisoners. So we just sort of sent out mailings like emails and then at Penn there was a lot of uh, publicity through Penn I think. So we got some missions and I was in Berkeley at the time, and we'd get boxes of manuscripts that would be kind of exciting to open a cardboard box and take out these stories and start reading them. Unlike my student writing, all the prison writing was achingly raw and real. Mm-hmm. There was nothing that seemed to be manufactured or artificial. There were no horror stories or, or fantasy stories. It was all pretty raw. 
And it wasn't necessarily about crime. The, the idea of the noir was just being in prison and the kind of prison life. <laughs> and it was very exciting because I, I had different piles of manuscripts on, on a bed, you know, the, the A pile, those that were so good that I had to have them, the B pile, those that were quite good but had to be revised a little and, and so forth. So it was always it was always kind of exciting. Uh, one such piece you might have is Christopher Stevens' Shuffle, where it didn't seem yeah, like it was a, yeah. about a crime, but uh, about an older convict who must confront, and uh, what we say in our review, an enigmatic new cellmate. What, what, tell us about that piece. Well, it's just wonderful. It has a great ending. A number of the stories have quite startling and dr- dramatic endings. And this was one of them, and of course, I can't give it away. No, don't spoil it. (laughs) No, no, and there's another one that has an even more shocking ending a little later on in the volume. Uh, Just really psychologically vivid, I thought, and probably written by an older prisoner. There are a number of older prisoners because people are, they're sentenced like 30 years to life. Mm. And they're all what they call lifers meaning that they probably have killed someone. And in California, there are a number of lifers, and they probably, I mean, I'm just saying probably, had killed someone in relationship to gang, gang activity. A lot of gangs out in California. The prisons are made up of gangs. We didn't have any gang members in the prison university program that I knew of. It's the gangs of these young, the youngish men in their twenties, and they belong. There's a Mexican gang. There's North Mexican. There's California, Southern California, Northern California, black. You know the Bloods and the Crips you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Hispanic gangs. It is just amazing. You know, once you learn that they're almost like fraternities at a university. Each of these fraternities or each of these gangs has a distinctive membership. And basically, they're feuding with the others. So they can't be together. They have to be in different cell blocks. And there's a whole politics of prison. So we didn't seem to get any of these. We had different sort of individuals who were older, who are not not evidently in gangs anymore. It's sort of a young man's world. Hmm. Did any of the stories deal with that aspect of prison? You know, none of them really dealt with that. I, mean, I don't mean to be critical of the people who are in gangs. I don't know them at all, but I just had the feeling that their whole focus on life is not to prepare for any future. Mm. That it's instant gratification. The expectation is probably in their neighborhoods that you're not going to live to be more than you know 25 or 30. To go to prison may be saving their lives. It's a very, very violent world, and they kill one another in drive-by shootings, and that happens a lot in Chicago also. Mm. doesn't happen in New York. For some reason, we don't have that kind of culture in New York. So tell us about Andre White's Angel Eyes, which is uh, another piece uh, like Christopher Stevens' piece, where you have a uh, an older inmate coming into contact with a younger inmate. In this case, it's an elderly convict who, I, I guess, witnesses the um, how can we say the dehumanization of of young inmate. Um, tell us a little bit about that piece and about what it was when you selected this that that kind of 
grabbed your attention? Well, it's interesting. There are there are a couple of stories, and maybe even more, that had angel in the title. Wow. <laughs> and this is angel eyes. Well, the whole the whole idea is about an old, as you say, an older prisoner mm-hmm. who's contemplating the new young fish, as they call them. He's seen some wild ones come through that bit hard like a piranha in the fishbowl, hmm. and one stood out. And here he seems to be seeing someone who's clean, forever young, and innocence begging you to corrupt, to violate for him. And there's a very powerful undercurrent and overcurrent, of course, of eroticism. This story was so well written. It's very lyric. You know, it's just like somebody is at the top of his style. I don't know if he's written any other stories, but the ease with which the narrator speaks is just really, really impressive. Hmm. Like he says, shining shoes got me all around the prison, access to everywhere. I move like water through cracks and crevices, leaking out where I wanted. That's really sinister, wow. and yet it's beautifully written. It's very poetic. I move like water, leaking out where I want it. Wow. And then there are a number of portraits, sort of thumbnail portraits of of people, one of them named Gorilla Black. Huh. Wow. Well, anyway, it's one of these stories that just struck me immediately as soon as I started reading it. And it, of course, has has a very startling ending and very sad. So what are some of the other themes within the book, um, areas of commonality? You said there are a number of older prisoners. What else? Themes? Well, most of them, as I was saying initially, they there's this air of, of sorrow and repentance for having made a mistake. There's nobody who wrote, I don't think anybody in any submissions claiming to be innocent. Mm. These are not the kind of people who are pretending that they were innocent. Mm. They see that they made a mistake. I think the whole act of writing, in most cases, and going to take courses, suggests a level of maturity that you're not going to find in the, you know, the 20-year-olds. And so their themes tend to be about what their crime has done to them and just expressing um, the ambiguity of, of life in the prison. But most of it, I think, is really repertorial. When I read the stories, I was really seeing vividly just what it looks like in prison. And incidentally, I did see part of Orange is a New Black, uh-huh. thinking, thinking that I would be uh, intrigued by that. That is very, very light comedy. <laughs> yes. It's a little in different. Fact, yeah. In fact, I was a little upset or disappointed because there's a real problem of, of women, incarcerated women all around the country who are often mentally ill, physically ill, and they're very unhappy. I mean, really desperately unhappy. And... Orange is the New Black makes them out to be, it's almost like a musical. You know, each one of the prisoners has a kind of soliloquy or a monologue and a lot of laughter and showing off and good acting, I think. But Orange is the New Black has virtually no relationship 
to any of the prison situations that I encountered reading reading for this now this book. Hmm. Well, there's a uh, I know there's a uh, a program at Rikers Island. Did you get many submissions from there and uh, and from the women there? Well, I did try to get more women. There are only two women in the valley, and we tried very hard. I'm nothing from Rikers Island. I have no idea what's going on there. It, it sounds like such a desperate place when we read about it yeah. in the newspaper. The, the strange thing about the women was, according to people who were working with them, that they had very strong autobiographical material and very painful material about being sexually abused and molested and really mistreated. Many, many of them are involved in drugs but they get involved through men, through men in their lives. And in some cases, they've been betrayed. These women could write something, but they were not able to finish mm-hmm. much. So Susanna Moore and I yell at Waldman were both telling me that they would come for a few sessions and have something to say, but then never come back. Mm. And I don't know why that would be the case. It does take some effort to write something of about 15 pages. And if you're depressed or despairing or or mentally ill, I guess you just can't do it. So the bottom line for being a writer is you have to finish what you're writing. You know, you can't break off on page 8. And so that was the problem with most of the women's submissions. They were not finished. Hmm. So where do you go from here? I mean, this this is just such a, a sort of revolutionary kind of life-changing project it sounds like how how can you uh, proceed from that point well i'm not sure that i would personally proceed we did a we did a panel on prison noir uh at the brooklyn book fair mm-hmm. on sunday and a lot of people were large a large audience and a lot of people evidently were very excited about signing up to volunteer and they made a lot of inquiries afterward about being in a, a prison university program. So maybe that's the next step is just people coming forward who don't know about the volunteer programs and, and getting involved. Well, that's fantastic. We've been talking with Joyce Carol Oates. You can find her book, Prison Noir, in stores right now. Joyce, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Poetry Reviews editor Alex Crowley talks about the perfect poems for fall. Stay tuned. I'm Diane Ackerman, the author of Human Age, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW Poetry Reviews editor Alex Crowley is here to tell us about this fall's big poetry titles. Hey there, Alex. Hi, guys. Hey, it's always nice to have you here. So um, the last time you were on the show was about five months ago, and you were talking about poetry for the springtime. I expect poetry for the fall is a little different. So what do you got? Um, I have a few things I, I, I could say offhand that... Poetry in the fall, whether it's conscious or not, is uh, a little bit darker. Yeah, I'm an, I would imagine so. Um, I got a, I, I, I brought five books with me. I, we won't get a chance to talk about all of them, of course, but I, I'd like to just list them off at the very least. Um, some big ones that 
I think will be on sort of end of year lists and uh, mm. even people who aren't normally into poetry um, or getting into it, uh, some really good things to, to pick up this year. Um, Louise Glick's latest, uh, Faithful and Virtuous Night. Um, it's a big title. Um, I think it was on the National Book Awards list. Mm-hmm. Um, Great. And, you know, she's sort of a legend. Yeah, in, yeah, in the, sure. In I was going to say, I, so. I know nothing about poetry, and even I recognize the name. Yeah, she, uh, and this is her, her last book was, uh, was it collected or selected? Um, but this is her first, you know, singular work in, in a while. Um, it takes a few different turns um, away from the, the mythology and in certain aspects of her previous work. Um, but it's beautiful, engaging, and it, it, it immersive. And I think it deserves to be on whatever lists it ends up on at the, at the end of the year. Immersive is a, is a great word. So what's the subject matter? Well, Craig Teicher, our esteemed colleague, he and I were talking about it, and he found in it uh, a sort of sub-level storyline about an English painter mm. and I think he's onto something here it's not it's not explicit but it's in there yeah and you have to dig a little deep to get there um but there is a a narrative that runs through the book um so is this a collection or is this one one poem? it's a it's a collection it's a collection of different poems yeah. but they're tied together right which is why I say like the, anything resembling a narrative is 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 buried. You have to go searching, but right. you can feel it as you as you move through. You're like, right. You know, here's a hint, of something here, and a hint there. Neat. And uh, it's one of the it's one of the books that you finish reading it. You're like, okay, I'm gonna move on to new books now, but I'm gonna go back to that as soon as possible. Ah, um, right. Which is a, a nice feeling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. what's next on your uh, list? Alex? So next, um, uh, a, a less well established, but established enough and uh poet uh matea harvey um it's her first book in seven years i believe um it's called if the tabloids are true what are you and it's (laughs) an amazing book because it's not just her poems but it's also as you can see it's full of her own artwork Mm. Um, photographs and illustrations yeah um yeah you know she, she has a a whiteout um, of a Ray Bradbury short story in here as a poem. Uh, a bunch of poems in the beginning are... Um, they're titled with mermaid. They're about mermaids, but the mermaids, instead of having, you know, fish tails, have different uh, sort of tools or implements. Like a spork. Like a spork or mm, a wow. rake or scissors. Huh. And then th- there's a, a series called Inside the Glass Factory. It's a bunch of tiny glass bottles and one of them is the main character it's a series of young girls who work in a factory and one of them uh, escapes um and the the final section of the book is amazing Uh, she learned um how to embroider for Mm -hmm. the book and did a series on the inventor antonio meucci who arguably invented the first telephone before the idea was stolen um and matea imagines that Antonio's wife Esther, who was a seamstress, um, just made designs of his uh, patents. So there's these 
embroideries of these patents, and then she also writes poems based on the patents themselves, and it's kind of unbelievable. But I want to read a shorter poem Great. from earlier in the book, just sure. to get a taste. We did a profile with Matea back in August, and one of the things that she brought up was how people have seen her work as a sort of cute or twee, which is unfair, because there's always this un- like very dark underbelly, which fits into the dark autumn theme, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's right, you know, with the, mer- the weird mermaids and whatnot. Um, this is a poem called Michelin Man Possessed by William Shakespeare. I've taken many forms over the years, but this may be the strangest one. I see through his eyes, but cannot shed a tear. I can feel his feet, but am not free to leave this spot by the garage. I think he feels a kind of love for the balloon who bobs nearby. Each day he sees her sink an inch. Though I want to tell him of the moon and slippered feet in marble halls, these tires at our waist are a mischief. I make believe they are couplets of rubber, but barbed wire would be more apt. It's very hard to breathe. Make us a man or make us a machine, but do not leave us trapped here in between. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so that kind of gives a little taste of Matthias' book, which is already out. Um, a few of these are just coming out. Some of them are October. Um, but the Louise Glick, I think, is just out now. Matthias' has been out for a month. Um, and then here's two more. One has just come out. It's called Prelude to Bruise by Saeed Jones. It's a debut book. But he's been making quite a name for himself online. coming up. Yeah, he's Mm. the LGBT editor at BuzzFeed. Mm -hmm. Has a huge social media presence at uh, The Ferocity on on Twitter. Um, I haven't met him in person, but I get the impression he's a huge personality. But this is uh, a crazy, crazy book. Um, it's extraordinarily beautiful, but it's also tells a heart wrenching story of a young boy who's mm-hmm. just named boy, um, coming up and it's a coming of age story as a young black gay man in the South. Um, I don't want to give away too much because there are some twists at the end, sure. mm-hmm. but it brings in a lot into focus um, about themes that are just really coincidentally big right now. There's themes of child abuse in here, like the criminalization of the black body, mm-hmm. um, being a young black gay man, um, mm-hmm. even just the uh, the epigraph in light of and this and and I read this just as the Michael Brown uh, killing and it's a it's a a line from Kafka but it says the man in ecstasy and the man drowning both throw up their arms and I think Oof. I think this book um, and the next one I wanted to talk to uh, Claudia Rankine's Citizen and American Lyric are both maybe two of the most important books um, oh, to come out and I th- really think people need to read them and understand what's going on in them. Um, I mean, just, you know, this week in Ohio, the police were not charged with 
killing John Crawford. Mm-hmm. Um, we expect there to be no justice done in the Michael Brown killing. Uh, the police killed Eric Garner. Um, and and Claudia's book is a meditation. It's It's listed as essays and poetry, but it's her own experiences, the experiences of her colleagues, I think, and and the experiences of um, other even famous people reacting to the idea of their own uh, invisibility because of their skin and who they are, or when they are noticed, mm. how they are sort of violating uh, a space or invading a space. Um, you know, Cuddy starts off talking about uh, an episode in elementary school um, where you know she made a pact with a, a, a white girl in the class and she never knew if she didn't it was a pact about cheating the, the white girl would cheat off her paper because um, she was always one of the best in the class and she never knew that if she didn't get caught because she was never noticed or as, as even a member of the class or if she never got caught because nobody would ever have assumed that she would be the one to be che- whose paper would be cheated off of. And it just goes further in there, just look, interactions with colleagues, with friends, and the, the what seem like small moments of the, the weirdest racist moments, but they seem small, but over time they collect and you write them off and you write them off. And then it, in one moment they explode. Um, she talks about Serena Williams on the tennis court mm-hmm. and why people don't understand her reactions to things. Um, she talks about Zinedine Zidane mm-hmm. during the, the World Cup final in 2006. And this is the uh, infamous uh, headbutt. The headbutt, yeah. And she does this. And is this was this in one of the essays of the this, book, or well, was it one of the it, poems? The the poems are essays, mm. and essays are poems. It's mm-hmm. it's a lyric. But it doesn't take... Uh, it takes more of an essayistic form. You can see that it it looks sort of like prose on the page. It's like it's broken into paragraphs. But it's bro- it's broken up, and some parts are lineated. You know, it goes in and out of uh, sort of a, a diaristic tone or form. You would think that there would be like high, a high diction, and it doesn't take... It's very plain spoken. It's straightforward. It is conversational in some way, but it's just... Converse, it, it, but it's more of a monologue in that she's telling you mm-hmm. um, what she's feeling mm-hmm. and uh, and that's that's the main tone it takes there are a few sequences in there that she worked um, with the artist uh, John Lucas and I have the galley so I don't know how exactly they look in the final version um, but there's also some other pieces of art in between but the sequences with with John Lucas you know there's the World Cup one. Oh, there's one on uh, uh, on stop and frisk. They, they were like situation videos, so there's like mm. images interspersed with the text. Um, some of it is uh, appropriated text, right. um, and others is her voice. And tell us again the, the 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 titles and the authors of these two books that that you said are are, are two of the most important books of poetry coming out. Um, this one is Citizen, an American lyric. Um, it's Claudia Rankings. It's her follow up to. Um, don't Let Me Be Lonely, an American lyric, which came out a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the exact date. Um, and this this will be out uh, early October. Um, and the other one is 
uh, Saeed Jones' Prelude to Bruise, and that one's out now. Right. Um, and that's... Those those are two big ones. Um, and Louise Glick's Faithful and Virtuous Night, and Matea Harvey's If the Tabloids Are True, What Are You? Mm. And I would say, if you're going to buy four books of poetry this year, uh, get these four. These are the ones. Yeah. So um, we have just a few minutes left, and you did bring a fifth book, so I was wondering if you wanted to if I get have, into that I wasn't real sure if quickly. I have. The, the, the yep, fifth one I have just a couple minutes. is uh, Wunderkammer by Cynthia Cruz. This one also comes out in October. It's different in tone somewhat than, or in, in purpose also, than these other four, but I, I found this one a, an especially a decadent sort of engagement with like madness or a, or a psychic break. Um, I guess that there's also some elements of abuse in here. They're a little bit more subsumed than in, say, like Prelude to Bruise, which is very overt in what it's discussing. And there's language that, you know, can mask things. But mm-hmm. Wunderkammer is very much about the mask. Um, there's a lot of descript- description of... Uh, material material description you know, like makeup and clothing um, but through that you get a real sense of the speaker her dealings with like feeling feeling on the at the edge of sanity and you know at one point she says I've a voice I have a voice in my head of a an insane woman and you know there's it, it, it moves along from there hmm. it's also very dark mm. and uh but yeah, the the language is beautiful. The language in all of these is beautiful, and I, I think that's one of the main reasons that people come to poetry is to see something through a different lens. And these all do that. Um, I think the Wunderkammer is something that I think if you had explained it to me without me reading it before, I might have had a second thought about it. But just getting in, and it's just I stormed right through it, and I thought it was a fantastic. Well, Alex, thank you so much. It's always great to have you on the show. I really appreciate you joining us. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Patrick Swenson, author of The Ultra Thin Man, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview, and we'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 